0: Okay, let me pray for us, and then we're going to get into the book of Nahum, the book of Nahum. All right, let's pray. Jesus, I thank you for your grace to us. I thank you that you um, have brought us to this place today where though we are separated um, uh, into our own homes and uh, worshiping with our own families, uh, that we get to hear from your scriptures today uh, as, as a people. Father, that, that though we are not gathered, uh, we are all getting to hear the same message from the same book, um, from the same spirit. Uh, and, and we pray that you would work in our hearts uh, in various living rooms and various locations and outside theater screens across our city. We pray that you would encourage and that you would uplift and that you would um, build our people up, that you would convict us and that you would give us hope. Pray that you would speak to us through this book of Nahum. is a Um, beautiful and difficult book. Um, Would you help us to, um, to heed the difficult warning and to rejoice in the beautiful promise that we find here. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Amen. All right, we're continuing our prophet series. Uh, Next week, we're going to take a one-week break, uh, and we're going to celebrate Ascension Sunday, Ascension being the ascension of Christ back into heaven. Pastor Sam will be bringing us um, our first ever Ascension Sunday sermon as a church. We've not done this in the past, but we hope that that it will be a piece of our um, annual celebration of of the Lord. And so Pastor Sam will be doing that next week, and then we'll get back into prophets, and we'll conclude the prophets um, early June. Uh, at which time then we're going to go into the book of um, Colossians. And so if you've not read through Colossians, it'd be a great book to read through before we get to it. Um, and uh, we'll be walking through that this um, summer uh, before getting to the book of Romans in the fall, uh, Lord willing. Um, so, so today, continuing in our book, in our journey through the prophets, uh, we're here in the book of Nahum. And you know, Nahum is one of the most beautifully written um, prophet, uh, prophetic books. In fact, uh, perhaps it's one of the most beautifully written because what we know about it is that it was actually a book. Um, it, it, what, maybe it was spoken, uh, but but it was definitely written. And there's a level of beauty that you can put into written word that um, oftentimes doesn't come out when you're just um, free flowing as, as, as an orator. And so there's this beautiful poetry and this creative and clever writing that's taking place here. Um, and in the, in the midst of this beautiful poetry and this beautiful writing, this, this clever book uh, is a horrific message of doom. It's this message of devastation and woe, an oracle of woe um, to the city of Nineveh and the people of Assyria. If you remember, Nineveh is, is the capital city of, of the Assyrian Empire, and Assyria has come in and conquered um, Judah and conquered the, the, the people there, um, God's people, and they've led them into captivity and into exile. And, and this is an oracle of, of doom towards them, an oracle of woe towards Nineveh and Assyria. Now, if you've been journeying with us through the prophets, you'll remember that a few weeks ago uh, we were in the book of Jonah, and in jonah god calls um God calls uh, uh, Jonah to go to the city of Nineveh. And to come and to prophesy to the city of Nineveh that God is going to destroy them. And so um, after this long drawn out process of Jonah running from God, uh, storm being thrown in the sea, swallowed by a fish for three days, thrown up. He finally shows up in, uh, in Nineveh and, and he stands and he declares this message, 40 days and you will be destroyed. And, and that's the only message we have recorded of him saying. It's kind of like he just stands up and goes, hey, in 40 days, you will all, you will all be destroyed. All right, thanks. And he, and he leaves. That, that's his sermon. But what happens in Nineveh is the people are stirred by the Spirit of God, and they repent. Like, like they confess, and they repent, and they mourn, and they weep from, from the baker to the king, from, from every aspect of society. They mourn, and they weep, and they repent, and God spares them. In fact, the, the book ends with the question of God saying, should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from the left and also much cattle? Right. It ends with this question of God questioning Jonah and going, shouldn't I have pity for them? Shouldn't I have mercy for them? Um, they, they are people and they have repented. I should have this mercy for them. Now we have the book of Nahum. Over a hundred years later, Nineveh has turned from their repentance. They no longer are walking in obedience and faithfulness to God. We don't know how long it took, whether it was a day, two days, a week, a year, decade, but, but now they have turned from it and they have embraced their evil, wicked ways just as they always had. Just as they always had. They've embraced this violent and heinous lifestyle. Kevin DeYoung sums up the book of Nahum um, beautifully, I believe, (laughs) and simply when he says this. The message of Nahum is, quote, Nineveh, you are as good as dead, unquote. Nineveh, you are as good as dead. That really is the message. Nineveh is as good as dead. They have sinned. They continue to sin." And they have sinned horrifically. They've sinned against God. They've sinned against God's people. They've sinned against all of humanity. They will not repent. Their minds have been set like flint against God in their rebellion. They will not repent. They will not cry. The primary image that we get of God in the book of Nahum is that of a warrior. It's an image we don't talk about as much in our culture. We talk about God in relationship and God as friend and God as uh, as one who loves us and cares for us and, and one who gives grace and mercy. Uh, but the God that we serve, the same God who is full of mercy, the same I should say the same God who is mercy and the God who is love and the God who, who, who is goodness, that same God is also just and he's wrathful and he's a warrior, and he's going to seek out a war against those who have committed this evil towards him and his people. Our God is a warrior, and there will be blood. That is the message of Nineveh. Our God is a warrior, and there will be blood. Evil, and wickedness, and cruelty, and murder, and abuse, racism, and neglect, torment, Sin, rebellion of all kinds towards God will not go unpunished. He will wage war against them. There will be blood. There will be justice. Romans, I, I have wept um, this week over you. Your stories going over my mind. I know your stories, at least those of you who are covenant members, to know your stories. Right? In our covenant membership at our church, Just among our covenant members, we are full of people who have been physically abused. We're full of people who have faced emotional torment and been used. People who have been sexually assaulted, molested, and raped. People who have been spiritually beat up. People who have faced racial um, profiling and discrimination. We've even had people within our covenant membership who have had loved ones murdered and taken from them through violence. Our covenant family has not escaped cruel and painful violence of sin's reach. The word of God through the prophet Nahum is a warning of destruction to the wickedness and evil that we have faced. And it is a warm blanket for the wincing soul of those who take refuge in Christ. And so today we want to open this book and we want to look at it. This book is going to tell us that God will win. His enemies will be humiliated and destroyed. God's enemies will be humiliated and destroyed. This is either good news or it's bad news, depending on if you're his enemy or if you're his friend book of Nahum says that God is a warrior and there will be blood. And today I want us to walk through it section by section. It's three chapters. I believe we can hang with it. We're going to walk through it section by section. We're going to see what he says to the people of Assyria, to the people of Nineveh. We're going to see God's heart for justice. We're going to see the warrior within him come out, the warrior that he is to, to, to prevail upon these people. We're going to see God's love for his people displayed in his justice towards those who have done evil towards them. And then we want to look at what this means for us today. I want us to begin in chapter one, verse nine. Chapter one, verse nine. We'll come back to verses one through eight. But chapter one, verse nine. I want us to read verses nine, or yeah, verses nine through 15. Verses 9 through 15. What do you plot against the Lord? He will make a complete end. Trouble will not rise up a second time. For they are like entangled thorns, like drunkards as they drink. They are consumed like stubble, fully dried. From you came one who plotted evil against the Lord, a worthless counselor. Thus says the Lord, Though they are at full strength and many, I they are though they are at full strength and many, they will be cut down and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. And now I will break this yoke off from you, and will burst your bonds apart. The Lord has given commandment about you. No more shall your name be perpetuated. From the house of your gods, I will cut off the carved image and the metal image. I will make your grave, for you are vile. Behold, upon the mountains, the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feasts, O Judah. Fulfill your vows, for never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. Now, what we see in chapter one and the verses that we haven't read yet, in verses one through eight, and here in nine through fifteen, is this back and forth, this back and forth that Nahum gives us of, of in one moment he's he's predicting judgment against the evil, and in the next moment he's predicting hope for for those who are not you, or for those who are righteous, for those who are who are God's friends. And he doesn't really tell us here who's who. It almost leaves us or leaves the reader as you're reading through this kind of going, well, well, which one am I? You have to think Judah's receiving this and Judah's in exile. It's like, which, which one am I here? Am, am I the one receiving this, this damnation or am I the one receiving the, the blessing? We don't see until later in chapter two that who he's referring to as those who will receive this, this damnation or this woe, this oracle of woe are or, or Nineveh and Assyria but he begins to talk through here and he comes to them with this oracle of woe that he will find them, he will afflict upon them judgment. And what he calls for among his people, we see in verse 15 is celebration and faithfulness. He says in verse 15, behold upon the mountains, the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feast, O Judah. fulfill your vows for never again shall the worthless pass through. He is utterly cut off. right he's saying, listen, I'm bringing you good news, and this is a beautiful good news. The good news is this: your, your enemy, the, the one who brings you much violence and much much pain and much heartache, the one who's done much evil to you, he'll never again pass through you. I will cut him off. So celebrate. And be faithful. God's promise of justice over evil should bring forth within His people celebration and faithfulness. Now he goes on in chapter two, and in chapter two, verses one through thirteen, he we we get this picture of this prevailing siege of this city of darkness, right? Or or here historically the city of Nineveh, that God is is bringing in an army. And what we know is it will be the Babylonians who will siege them, who who, who will will come in and they will capture Assyria. They will conquer Nineveh. And what we get from beginning to end of chapter two is this story of them coming. It's it's this poem of this siege taking place. Let's, Let's read it. Chapter two, verse one, the scatterer has come up against you. Man the ramparts, watch the road, dress for battle, collect all your strength. For the Lord is restoring the majesty of Jacob as the majesty of Israel. For plunderers have plundered them and ruined their branches. And here's the siege. The shield of his mighty men is red. His soldiers are clothed in scarlet. The chariots come with flashing metal on the day he musters them. The cypress spears are brandished. The chariots race madly through the streets. They rush to and fro through the squares. They gleam like torches. They dart like lightning. He remembers his officers. They they stumble as they go. They hasten to the wall. The siege tower is set up. The river gates are opened. The palace melts away. Its mistress is stripped. She is carried off, her slave girls lamenting, moaning like doves, and beating their breasts. Nineveh is like a pool whose waters run away. Halt! Halt, they cry, but none turns back. Plunder the silver, plunder the gold. There is no end of the treasure or of the wealth of all the precious things. Desolate, desolation and ruin. Hearts melt and knees tremble. Anguish is in all loins. All faces grow pale. Where is the lion's den, the feeding place of the young lions, where the lion and the lioness went, where his cubs were with none to disturb? The lion tore enough for his cubs and strangled prey for his lioness. He filled his caves with prey and his dens with torn flesh. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will burn your chariots in smoke and the sword shall devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the earth and the voice of your messengers shall no longer be heard this poetic description of the siege that would come to the walls of Nineveh. It begins with a conquering army approaching from afar, and it takes us step by step through the siege of the city until it is plundered, all of its wealth gone, everything good within the city taken and stripped away. I don't have time to explain each line of this, but the picture that we get is that Nineveh stands no chance against this siege that will take place. And this siege that will take place was orchestrated and planned by God. Yes, it was It was carried out by the Babylonians and the Medes, but it was God's design to overtake Assyria, to judge Assyria. In verse is 10 through 12, God tells them that even these lions who devour, who pray, who take more than they need for their kids and for their their wives, even these lions who have devoured others, they will turn pale and they will be destroyed. They will be devoured. Verse 13 is perhaps the most terrifying verse in the Bible to me. We will see this said again in chapter three. But verse 13, God says, behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. Oh, to have the God of heavens, who holds the sun and the stars in his hands, who holds my very body together and keeps my blood flowing through my very veins, the God who has authority over all things to say to me, I am against you. What defense did the Assyrians have against this? There's no contingency plan for that. There's no battle plan to fight against the creator God who holds all things together when he declares to them, I am against you. Chapter three. In chapter three, we see the Assyrians utter inability to escape God's wrath. Utter inability to escape God's wrath. Chapter three is full of God taunting his enemy. He does so in a way not only to destroy evil, but to humiliate it. It's this idea that he will bring the proud into submission. Those who will not humble themselves before him now will face humility then. It's almost as if God is standing over the one whom he has brought to ruin and he is now humiliating them. Taunting them, wringing the rag of their pride until there is nothing left to drip out. Verses 1 through 4 are an oracle of woe. It's a promise of destruction, and it's a pronouncement of their pride. He's listing off in poetic fashion all the prideful strength of Assyria. Read it verses 1 through 4. Woe to the bloody city. All full of lies and plunder. No end to the prey. The crack of the whip and the rumble of the wheel. Galloping horse and bounding chariot. Horsemen charging, flashing sword and glittering spear. Hosts of slain, heaps of corpses, dead bodies without end. They stumble over the bodies. All for the countless whorings of the prostitute. Graceful of the deadly charms. Who betrays nations with her whorings and peoples with her charms. If we were gathered together in our theater today and our kids were upstairs in Emmaus' kids, um, I, I would likely read to you from the kings of Assyria, the kings of Nineveh, um, oracles, or excuse me, stories and, and accounts of, of what they have done, how they gloated and prided themselves over the wickedness and evil that they did to others. But it, it's too graphic for this setting with your children sitting in your living room this morning. But you get a taste of it here. Corpses piled up. Flashing swords and glittering spears, hosts of slain people, dead bodies without end, stumbling over the, the bodies. But the picture that we get is that Assyria and Nineveh were violent and angry and prideful, that they took full advantage of others, that they slayed people, that they, the bodies of their, of their wrath, of their evil, of their wickedness were piled so high that they were stumbling upon them. And it's this pride that God attacks. He conquers them and humiliates them. Look at verse five. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts, and will lift up your skirts over your face. I will make the nations look at your nakedness and the kingdoms at your shame. I will throw filth at you, and treat you with content, and make you a spectacle. And all who look at you will shrink from you, and say, Wasted is Nineveh, who will grieve for her? Where shall I seek comforters for you? Are you better than Thebes, that sat by the Nile, with water around her, her rampart a sea, and water her wall? Cush was her strength, Egypt too, and that without limit. Put and the Libyans were her helpers. Yet she became an exile. She went into captivity. Her infants were dashed in pieces at the head of every street. For her honored men, lots were cast, and all her great men were bound in chains. You also will be drunken. You will go into hiding. You will seek a refuge from the enemy. All your fortresses are like fig trees. With first ripe figs, if shaken, they fall into the mouth of the eater. Behold, your troops are women in your midst. The gates of your land are wide open to your enemies. Fire has devoured your bars. Draw water for the siege, strengthen your forts, go into the clay, tread the mortar, take hold of the brick mold. There will there will the fire devour you. The sword will cut you off. It will devour you like the locusts. Multiply yourselves like the locust. Multiply like the grasshopper. You increase your merchants more than the stars of the heavens. The locust spread its wings and flies away. Your princes are like grasshoppers, your scribes like clouds of locusts settling on the fences in a day of cold. When the sun rises, they fly away, and no one knows where they are. Your shepherds are asleep, O king of Assyria, your noble slumber your people are scattered on the mountains with none to gather them there is no easing your hurt your wound is grievous all who hear the news about you clap their hands over you for upon whom has not come your unceasing evil God is stripping them of all of their pride now this has some language that is difficult to, to read and to hear some some images that are hard An image of of God lifting their skirts and showing their nakedness for all to see. It's this idea of God parading them naked before their enemies. Of God bringing them to utter and complete humiliation. God will strip them of all of their pride in verses 5 through 7. In verses 8 through 11, God will repay them for what they did to others. Right? He says, I promise that Nineveh is no better off than Thebes, a city which the Assyrians had sacked. The Assyrians had gone into Thebes. Thebes had help. They had Egypt and Put and the Libyans. They had Cush on their side. They they had the sea around them. They, They were protected and they had allies. And the Assyrians conquered them without issue, dashing their children upon the rocks and leading their men off in chains. And God goes, you're no better off than Thebes. What happened to them will happen to you. You will not get away from this. In verses twelve through eighteen, God makes it clear to them that they will not be stopped; that He will not be stopped by any defense which they pride themselves in. In verse twelve, they, their defenses. He says that their defenses are useless. In verse thirteen, He says, "Your army is useless." Right? In verse 14, or verses 14 and 15, he says, your investments, or excuse me, your preparation is useless. In verse, 15, in verse 16, he says, your investments are worthless. In verses 17 through 18, your gods and your nations and your politicians and your religions are worthless. None of them will stop you. Right? Look at it again in verse 12. All your fortresses are like fig trees. When they're shaken, they fall into the mouth of the eater. Right? You're, the fortress that you build, that you pride yourself on, these these great walls around Nineveh, they'll mean nothing. It's worthless to defend you when I come for you. In verse 13, behold, your troops are women in your midst. Now, don't get offended, ladies. This this is not a sexist statement from, from God. It's, it's a statement of strength, that armies were built around strength of hand-to-hand combat. And he's going, listen, it's as if your armies were all women versus these other armies coming in. They cannot stand and fight against them. Your armies are worthless. He says in verses 14 and 15, draw water for the siege, strengthen your forts, go into the clay, tread the mortar, take hold of the brick mold. There will the fire devour you. The sword will cut you off. It will devour you like the locusts. Multiply yourselves like the locusts. Multiply like the grasshopper. He's saying, listen, do whatever you want to do to try to prepare for this attack. It won't help. In verse 16, you increased your merchants more than the stars of the heavens. The locusts spread its wings and fly away. Right, Assyria, you have spread out your financial arms into every segment of the world that you have conquered. You have learned how to, how to gain, how to profit off other people's loss. Your, your investments are deep and they will not help you. Your money will not save you. And so he attacks, or he humiliates. And then in verses 17 and following, he tells them that their princes, right, their scribes, have fled away. They've ran away. They, they are, will not help them, and no one even knows where they are. They're in hiding. And then he tells the king in verse 16, there's no easing your hurt, or excuse me, verse 19. There is no easing your hurt. Your wound is grievous. All who hear the news about you clap their hands over you. you. Do you get this picture? That the king of Assyria, Nineveh has fallen, Assyria has fallen, the king is laying there mortally wounded, dying, and all the nations are applauding and celebrating. They have no friends. There's no one coming to their defense. No one can rescue them. In fact, everyone's celebrating over them because evil has been defeated. Wickedness has been cast out. And we see this at the end of verse 19. For upon whom has not come your unceasing evil? Their evil had touched every corner of the earth and all the peoples of the earth were rejoicing over the end of this wickedness. This book was written as a woe to a wicked, violent, rebellious nation who humiliated and tortured and destroyed human lives. They were a people who burned and flayed and mutilated and impaled their enemies to make a point. And God brought them to justice. We know from history that Nineveh was so utterly destroyed by this siege, that it was not until the 1800s that any remains of it were even found. And when they found the city, unlike other cities, there was nothing of value left, nothing left in it. It had been completely and utterly pillaged and plundered, as chapter two told us. God completely wiped them out for their wickedness. Praise God. We can rejoice in the fact that God has justice and he is just towards those who are wicked, towards those who are evil, towards those who inflict injustice and wickedness and evilness and pain and hurt upon others. God is just and he is a warrior and he seeks out justice. There will be blood. God hates injustice and he will seek vengeance upon evil. Now, I know that this applies directly to Nineveh, right? What we've read here applies directly towards Nineveh. And so, so the question for us is how does this apply to us? Like, praise God it applied to Nineveh. Praise God he, he sought justice against Nineveh. If, if nothing else, we see that he has a heart of justice for his people and that he will act to silence and to to destroy what is evil and wicked because he did it to Nineveh and to Assyria. Praise God for that. But I believe there's something even more here. It's not just a historical fact that he did do this. It's not just an insight into his character and his heart that, that seeks justice, but it is also for us a promise that he will continue to do so. See, this is not the end of the book, or, or should I say it's not the beginning of the book. We, we missed the beginning. We skipped over it. Look back with me to Nahum chapter 1. In Nahum 1, verses 1 through 8, we see the beginning of this woe. But, but many believe that this woe in chapter, one verse, in chapter 1, verses 1 through 8, is not directly related to Nineveh or Assyria like the rest of the book but is globally applied. Meaning for all people throughout all of time and all places, this is a woe towards those who are wicked and evil. It is a declaration of God as a warrior towards those who are um, inflicting injustice upon others. Chapters one, verses one through eight talks about the global pandemic of God's wrath that all people across all of the globe will face God's wrath. Right, there, there is wrath for all people in all times. Speaks of his judgment against all of mankind. So this promise of God's justice being poured out upon evil and wicked people, the people who do not repent, is not just a promise that he did this. It's not just a, a factual statement that he did this to Assyria, but it's a promise that he will do this. All right, let, me, let me read it to you. An oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum of Elkash. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. And the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers, Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth, heavens before him, he or the earth heaves before him. The world and all who dwell in it. Verse six: Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. Verse seven, the Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. This is God's promise for us today. He is a jealous God a God who is avenging and wrathful, who takes vengeance on his adversaries, who keeps wrath for his enemies. This isn't just a historical account of what happened, but this is a promise that we can embrace. Justice will be poured out upon evil and wicked people who do not repent. This is our promise, your promise today for the injustice and the pain hurt, for the injustice and the pain and the hurt that has been Pause to you, right, for, for the 16,000 people who are murdered in the United States every year, God will seek justice. For the more than 50 million babies who have been aborted in the United States alone, God will seek justice. For the more than 42 million boys and girls who have been sexually abused in the United States alone, God will seek justice. For the more than 40 million people who are enslaved in human trafficking around our world, God will seek justice. For the more than three million children who are reported as victims of child abuse and neglect each year in the United States, and for the millions who are not reported and those who are around the world, God will seek justice. For every victim of hate crimes, racial discrimination, injustice based upon color, like Ahmad Aubrey, God will seek justice. For the fear and the horror and the nightmares and the tears, the anxiety and the worry, the mental illness and the suicide caused by memories and pain of injustice and evil, God will seek justice. And nothing, church, nothing will stand in his way. No defense that the enemy can have. No defense that the evil and the wicked can put up. Nothing that they pride themselves in will stop God's vengeful war for justice. There will be blood. Evil will not prevail. We get a picture of this. For us in Revelation nineteen and twenty. Allow me to read it for you. In Revelation nineteen, verse eleven. And I know where your mind will want to go. Try to make sense of all the details of this. Rather than trying to do that in this moment, hear what the Lord is telling us. See the heart of your Lord. See see the justice of See the warrior God that we follow displayed here in this text. Hear the hope for for us in the face of evil and wickedness. See God's might and God's strength. See his justice here in these words. Then I saw heaven open and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And then I saw an angel standing in the sun. With a loud voice, he called out to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of captains and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and their riders and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great." And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured and with it the false prophet who was in his presence had done who had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who had worshipped its image. Those, who were th- those two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur and the rest were slain by the sword that comes from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Chapter 20, verse 10. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were and they will be tor- tormented day and night forever and ever. Church, do you you hear these words of justice, these words of a warrior king, our warrior God, who will seek justice against evil and wickedness? Yes, he did it in Assyria and in Nineveh, but he will one day do it for all mankind, for all darkness, and even for Satan himself. There will come a day of judgment when Christ the king on his horse will ride into battle as the warrior God and he will slay his enemies. Satan, the forces of darkness and all of humanity who stands opposed to him as king will be slayed. This is either a story of great hope or a great woe for you. No one will escape it. As Nahum 1. eight says, he will pursue all of his enemies into darkness. No one will escape. No one can run. No one has a defense. No one will escape him except, of course, for those whom Nahum 1. seven says are those who take refuge in him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. The only escape, the only defense, the only hope against the wrath of God, against evil and injustice, is by taking refuge in God. So the question we're compelled to answer then is this. How do we become those people who take refuge in God? You know, in the Old Testament, taking refuge in God looked like repentance and walking in obedience to God. And this was displayed year after year through sacrifice. The people of God coming to the temple of God, bringing sacrifices for God, spilling the blood of an animal as an act of repentance and confession, and then leaving there to walk in obedience. Year after year, they would have to do this again and again because they could not continue to walk in obedience. They would over and over again find themselves in places where their lives were not walking in accordance with God, where they were rebellious, where they had sinned. And yet... Over and over again, when they came in repentance and confession and sought refuge in God, God would forgive. God would extend pardon. We don't live in that world. We live in a New Testament world. We live in a New Testament covenant. Confession and repentance are still needed. We confess our sins, we repent of our sins but we do so by hoping in the person, and the work of Jesus Christ who died on the cross, right? We no longer have to come and make sacrifices to God every time we fail to keep his commandments. Why? Because Jesus Christ, the son of God, fully God and fully man, born of a virgin, raised in human form, tempted in every way we were, yet did not, yet without sin, never once, did he sin, never did he give in to lust, never did he give in to hatred, never did he lie, never did he gossip or covet or disobey God in any way. This perfect man God, fully God, fully man, without sin, living perfectly, offered up his perfect life on the cross as a recipient of God's crushing wrath, not because of his sin, but because of our sin stepping into the path of God's wrath, receiving its blow upon himself so that you and I might not have to. You see, the the issue is this that we see in Nahum. No one escapes God's wrath. No one escapes God's justice. All evil and all wickedness must pay. Not just in Assyria and Nineveh, but globally and historically, including you and including I, your sin and my sin, the sin of our fathers and the sin of our daughters, the sins of Hitler and the sins of Mother Teresa, all sins, every human sin, finds justice in shed blood. There will be blood. But for some of us, we will await God's wrathful punishment for our sin. We will face the judgment and the divine punishment one day. We've not experienced it yet, but because we refuse to humble ourselves, refuse to confess, refuse to repent, refuse to look to Jesus as King, because we refuse to be humbled today and look to God as our refuge, one day we will face judgment and there will be blood. church. For some of us, for those of us who by the grace of God have sought refuge in the person and work of Jesus Christ, the punishment of our sin has already come in the past upon God's perfect son, Jesus Christ. For those of us who have sought refuge in Jesus, there has been blood, the blood of Jesus has already been spilt. God's wrath has already been poured out upon his son, Jesus, on our behalf. And so as we look to the future, we don't look to Revelation 19 and 20 with fear and trembling and woe for ourselves. How As if how do we get out of this? We have already found our escape because we have found refuge in Jesus. So we look to Revelation 19 and 20. We look to Nahum as a promise of hope that we can hope in that God will one day silence all evil and end all injustice, that he will stop all wickedness, that he will win. Our warrior God will win. And we rejoice in that. And we rejoice in Revelation chapter 21. Because for us, we get to experience this. For the former things have passed away. For those who have sought refuge in Jesus, there has already been blood, which means, as Nahum 1 7 says for us, God is our stronghold in the day of trouble. He is our refuge. He is where we find peace. He is where our tears go away. He is where our mourning comes to end. He is where all that has happened to us in the past is no. More. He is our hope. So pastoral charge number one for us. Look to Jesus and seek refuge in him alone. If you have never trusted in Jesus, if you've never hoped in him, you've never looked to Jesus as your refuge, trusted in his shed blood upon the cross and his resurrection from the dead, as your victory over death and judgment, as your as your pardon from God's uh, war on ju- for justice, if you've never sought refuge in Jesus, do so today. We see in Nahum chapter 1 verse 3 that he is slow to anger and great in power. He's able to save you and he will today if you'll cry out to him. Just as he did for Nineveh in the book of Jonah when they cried out in repentance, he forgave. Yet you have such a greater understanding of forgiveness today if you will call out upon the name of Jesus for your salvation will be sealed by his spirit. There's hope in Jesus. Call out today. And pastoral charge number two is this. Praise God for his relentless pursuit of justice. Every one of us who have been victim to the attacks of the enemy, who have felt the burn of evil sting, Who have been abused and neglected, assaulted, raped, forgotten, beaten down and cast aside, trampled over and discriminated against. Every one of us who has faced devastation from wicked, evil, sinfulness. For every one of us who close our eyes each night to the internal sound of evil's roars, like the lions in Nahum those deafening roars of taunting those terrifying roars of ridicule those triggering roars of pain and hurt those silencing roars of shame hope hope church jesus has overcome the world john 16:33 and the gates of hades will not resist his kingdom matthew 16:18 jesus has promised that there will be a day when evil will be destroyed once and for all, and you and I will rejoice in peace for the former things will pass away. So if you do not trust in Jesus, if you have not trust in Jesus, then do so. Our God is a warrior and there will be blood. Trust in Jesus. And if you have trusted in Jesus, if you have sought him as your refuge, then hope, and rejoice, for there has been blood. i pardoned you, and there will be blood when he seeks justice. He is a warrior God. Praise him for that. Church, I leave you with this from Revelation twenty two twenty 20, and 21. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. And the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen. I love you, church. Thank you for watching this AmazeKC podcast. More information about Amaze KC can be found available online at www.amazekc.com.